Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. From flying high above the battlefields of Iraq and Afghanistan to being elected as a congressman in the U.S. House of Representatives, our guest has dedicated his life to serving his country. Today, we're excited to welcome newly confirmed NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. Jim hails from Tulsa, Oklahoma, where he became all too familiar with extreme weather, so he understands the importance of improving our forecast capabilities. We'll discuss the major piece of legislation he helped pass to support expansion of weather research and forecasting. Plus, we'll hear about the evolution of his on climate change and how the work at NASA can further our understanding of its impacts. If that's not enough, we'll also get Jim's thoughts on the future of space exploration. Could it include a visit to Mars? It's all next on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's good to be here. I want to jump right in with some science because NASA just launched a really interesting mission to touch the sun. Yeah. Why, why is that important and why, why should all Americans be excited about that and why is it important for us as, as, as citizens? That's a great question and it's an important one. And a lot of people don't realize just, in fact, how important it is. So when you think about the sun, the sun actually creates what we call solar wind. So the sun is actually very responsible for what we call space weather. And, of course, people are familiar with solar flares. Um, some people are maybe not so familiar with call, what's called a uh, coronal mass ejection. So what happens is um, inside the sun, you know, it's, it's a nuclear fusion going on inside the sun, hydrogen fusion. And from that, charged particles are released. And, of course, in some cases, they're released in the form of a solar flare, which means you've got um, charged particles moving at a, at a high rate of speed. And in other cases, you can have what's called a coronal mass ejection, which means there's a whole lot of charged particles moving at, you know, at, at a very, very rapid speed, uh, almost the speed of light, if you will. And so th- in this particular case, what happens is um, the, uh, the, the, the solar radiation, the radiation that comes from the sun can be very damaging, not only to humans, in other words, astronauts that could be in deep deep space or could be um, on the International Space Station in low Earth orbit, but also very damaging for our our satellites. So when you think about um, uh, how important the satellites are to to us as, as civilization, the way we predict weather, the way we understand climate, the way we um, do disaster relief and national security, the way we do communications. We've got um, you know an entire uh, architecture in geostationary orbit for over-the-horizon communications. In fact, many of your viewers might be listening to this on a, on a podcast. They might download it on the internet. They could have internet from space. They could be um, getting it um, you know from from that architecture for communications uh, in in geostationary orbit. Uh, the way we do navigation, when you think about GPS and how important that GPS timing signal is, all of these satellites, 
And that, that GPS timing signal is important for banking. It's important for regulating flows on the power grid um, and a whole host of other infrastructure, um, you know, critical pieces of infrastructure for the United States and for the world. So all of these things are dependent on space. And when we have a coronal mass ejection, those things all be they, they can all be put at risk. In fact, they, they could ultimately um, go away. They could be permanently damaged. Um, and of course, it's not just that, but um, you know, if the lights go out on Earth or our cell phones quit working, um, things get really ugly really quickly, especially yes. if they don't come back very fast. So, yeah. yep. so what the what Parker Solar Probe is doing, it's going to help us understand how the sun works, so that we can better predict those solar flares and those coronal mass ejections. Yeah, this is important stuff. When you hear the term space weather, when I often mention it to people, uh, I think they think, uh, oh, a thunderstorm on Mars or something. But this, <laughs> right. spa this space weather is very critical because day-to-day -day activities on Earth are very much impacted. So it's just one of many examples of how NASA's program, the breadth of it is really not only exploring and understanding, but also has practical benefit for citizens. And I'm going to come back to more of that, but I want to just reflect on you for a while because when your name was put in as Renamo, nation as an asset administrator, as you well know, because you lived it, there was a lot of back and forth about, is he qualified? Is he the right person? By the way, I wrote in Forbes and I very much thought you were the right person. So I was very supportive of that nomination. And I appreciate that yeah, you, very much. You were a Navy fighter pilot for 10 years, flying over 1900 hours, uh, more than 300 aircraft landings, flew combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, you also flew F-18 Hornets, uh, you know, trying to fight the drug war. How has all of that prepared you to, you know, be a congressman and also lead the nascent space, space agency? And, and first, thank you for your service as well. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that. Um, so, uh, you know, when you, when you think about what NASA is and what NASA does, the first A in NASA is aeronautics. A lot of people forget about that. And aeronautics is, is critically important, not just... Uh, for um, national security and defense, it's important for our economy. We, we, you know, a lot of people don't realize when you go flying on an airliner, you are flying with NASA technology and capabilities and uh, wing designs and, you know, the, the engine designs. All of those things are developed by NASA in an open, in an open source kind of way so that industry can take advantage of it and ultimately it helps the United States maintain its edge technologically and then maintain its its you know a base of exports aviation for the United States of America is an export in fact it's a net export in other words we export more than we import and so when you think about the trade imbalance and a lot of people hear the president talk about the trade imbalance a lot aviation is just the opposite we have a trade surplus and, and so it's an offset to that trade imbalance, although it's not big enough to offset it entirely, obviously. <laughs> right. um, but but the, all that is possible because NASA and the U.S. government has made investments into aviation so, and aeronautics. So that's, I think, a, a, big, a big piece of it. The other thing is, as a member of Congress, what I found is that there, when you start talking about things like the, the architecture for communications in space, and as a member of Congress, being a, a former warfighter myself, I would I would bring up things like, you know, we need we need commercial satellite communications to be encrypted so that the warfighter can take advantage of it. We need those satellites to be able to frequency hop so that so that those signals can't be jammed by the enemy. In other words, we, we have the warfighter can take advantage of commercial satellite communications for a whole host of different capabilities. 
And what you find is that, you know, there's not a lot of members of, of Congress that, that speak in those terms. And so it kind of put me in a position where I could be the leader on these, on these space issues. And um, over the course of time, it, it kind of turned out that I was leading on space issues quite frequently. And then uh, the, the day came when, um, when President Trump got elected and um, I got nominated to be the NASA administrator. And um, so, you know, you never know how these things turn out. But I do think that whether it's my military pilot experience or my time in Congress, it all adds up um, to, to prepare me for this for this particular position. Sure, sure. And you also have a, a triple major in business administration, economics and psychology from Rice University, an MBA from Cornell. And, you know, there were critics out there that said, well, you know, he's a he's a former politician. He's a former congressman. Uh, he's not a scientist. Uh, should he be running NASA? You know, I, I, as you mentioned earlier, before we came on, I, I've spent many years, 12 years at NASA. And I remember administrators like Sean O'Keefe and Michael Griffin and others as well. So, you know, I didn't have as much of a problem with the background because we've had a variety of backgrounds. We had uh, Charlie Bolden, an astronaut, the most recent. So uh, how, how, how did you respond or how do you respond to those that say a scientist or an engineer should be leading NASA? Well, number one, there's no there's no one right answer here, and I'm sure a scientist or an engineer. I mean, we've had amazing ones, as you just mentioned. Uh, you know, uh, Michael Griffin was a, a great NASA administrator, and uh, he was you know an engineer's engineer with I don't know how many PhDs. He's he's that kind of guy, <laughs> and um, so look, the the there's no one right answer here. But I will also say that if you look in history, uh, I think one of the best NASA administrators was a guy named James Webb. And he was the administrator for about eight years in the 1960s. And he's the guy that was responsible for getting us to the moon. And he, you know, if you look at his career, he was an educator. He was a teacher. Uh, he was also a Marine Corps pilot in the reserves. So his, his uh, background there is similar to mine. But then he, he, he worked for a, a member of Congress. And he became a staffer on the Appropriations Committee in the Senate. And then he went on to work for the Office of Management and Budget, which at the time was called the Bureau of the Budget. Um, and here's the thing. Because of his efforts, because he knew how the levers of power worked, he knew how Washington, D.C. worked, uh, he ultimately is the man singly responsible for us getting to the moon. Don't get me wrong. I give tons of credit to President Kennedy and and. Um, and his you know, great speech and his vision, um, and of course, President Johnson, who continued that vision, and President Nixon, uh, who made it all happen at the very end there. So, uh, it, look, it was, an, it was a, a whole-of-government approach, but the, the, the gentleman that was behind that entire effort was a guy who came from the political arena. And, um, and it's because he knew how, he knew how, to, how to use the, the capabilities that he learned in, in politics. Um, and so I, I think, I think there's, there's no one right answer here. Um, but I'm happy to, I'm happy to be able to, uh, to serve in this capacity. And I look forward to doing it with, uh, for a number of great years. Yeah. And speaking of the James Webb, uh, you mentioned James Webb there, you made some recent news at the agency, uh, with the, with the James Webb, uh, telescope, which is sort of the sort of moving us forward, the next generation of space telescope observations, the great legacy of Hubble and others. Uh, wh what's the current status of James Webb? I understand there may be a slight delay, but it's definitely still in the cards for the agency. Absolutely. There's strong bipartisan support for the James Webb Space Telescope. Uh, there, there has been a delay. There is a cost overrun. Uh, I went back up to the Hill and, and talked um, in a committee hearing with my 
my old colleagues and, and explain to them how important this mission is, not only to NASA, but to the United States and to the entire world. What James Webb Space Telescope is going to enable us to do is see back to the very dawn of time. See back to the first light in the universe. You know, we have models here at NASA as to what, you know, the, the beginning of the universe might have looked like. <laughs> well, now we're going to actually see it. We're going to see it from, from the beginning because James Webb Space Telescope is going to be able to see that far back. Yeah. And, you know, it's, a, it's an amazing technological achievement. We need it to be successful. Uh, but at this point, we're looking at a, a March uh, 2021 launch date. And, uh, and when that launch is successful and the checkout is successful, uh, it's going to change how we understand our universe. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast. I'm Dr. Marshall Shepard from the University of Georgia, and I have the pleasure to be joined by the NASA Administrator, Jim Bridenstine. I want to now, this is Weather Geeks. This is a show um, powered by the Weather Channel. And we're, let's talk a little weather. Um, you, many people may not realize this, but you were one of the most significant figures uh, behind the Weather Research and Forecasting Innovation Act, along with uh, colleagues. Why was weather so important to you that you pushed forward one of the most significant pieces of major legislation in weather in the history of the country? Marshall, I just want to say this. You're an amazing PR guy. We need to hire you at NASA, and I need to have you go well, everywhere I, to, I go. I used to work there, and I'm quite happy in the university world now. But, uh, but you know, I, I give credit where credit is due, and I'll, I'll, I'll poke and criticize where it is due as well. But I, this was a, a I was the president, Jim, of the uh, uh, American Meteorological Society, AMS, in 2013. So there you go. very much involved in some of the, as this was coming about. So I know it's significant. So why, why, yeah. why was it so important to you? So I, I, I was representing the first district of Oklahoma, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And every year I was in Congress, I had constituents that got killed in tornadoes every year except for one year. Um, and in 2013, there was a, a massive tornado in Moore, Oklahoma, which is not in my district, but not too far from my district. And, and that tornado uh, hit a school and it killed 21 people. Um, and it devastated, you know, lives are going to forever be changed um, and not for the good because of that horrible, horrible event. And I resolved at that point to, to try to figure out how do we move to a day where we have zero deaths from tornadoes in the United States of America? We, we have the technology. If you think about the airplanes I used to fly, we have in the nose of those airplanes, we have something called a phased array radar where we detect and track um, and eventually target uh, aircraft on the horizon, a classified number of miles away. And then, you know, you take that same technology in the nose of an airplane and you put it, uh, in, in, you put it to work on a cloud. And so instead of detecting and tracking tiny little, um, targets on the horizon, namely airplanes, now you detect and track tiny little particles inside of a cloud and you take all of that data uh, all of the data on you know what's happening to those particles inside of a cloud, you put that data into a data assimilation system where it then flows into a numerical weather model. And we have proven that it's possible in this country to predict a tornado over an hour in advance. And in some cases, as much as two hours in advance, which is an absolute, it would be an absolute game changer for my constituents if we could get this technology fully developed and fielded. And so, um, so I looked at it and I said, how is it 
that in this country, we're not, we're not making that a reality as absolutely fast as possible. Um, and not just that, but a whole host of, of other capabilities. At the same time, uh, we had a delay in a satellite called JPSS. So the Suomi NPP satellite is a low Earth orbit satellite that presents about 80% of the data that goes into our numerical weather models for weather forecasting. About 80% comes from Suomi NPP and, and some of our other international partners as well. And, um, and, and that satellite was at the end of its useful life. Uh, and it, it had been pelted by debris and it had some it had some challenges. And at the same time, its replacement, the, the JPSS satellite, um, was was delayed. And this this particular delay would have resulted in us not being able to predict 25 percent of the severe storms in the state of Oklahoma, according to the testimony that we got on the Environment Subcommittee. All of that being said, um, I, you know, I, I said, well, we, we've got to do something about this. We need to figure out how do we get more data into those data assimilation systems, whether it comes from ground based radar that would be, uh, you know, mesoscale. Um, or satellites that, that would be larger scale. Uh, how, how, do we, how do we take all of this? How do we get more data ultimately? We need more data to be able to predict weather better. And there were a number of different solutions. And so we, we introduced this bill that would deal with some of these things and, and, um, and do you know, what's called observation system simulation experiments. Ah, Aussies. Yeah, there you go, Aussies. So when you think back um, as a Navy pilot, uh, we, we would create simulators of aircraft that aren't even built yet. We're talking about aircraft that we believe will be built 20 or 30 years from now. And then we develop concepts of operations for the technologies that we believe will exist 20 to 30 years from now. And then based on that, we can make determinations as to what technologies we need to develop and what technologies we need not to develop, what technologies would be a waste of taxpayer investments. Now, if you think about what an Aussie is, it does the same thing. We're going to put into the system um, models of, you know, if we developed this satellite or that satellite, or if we were to buy commercial data, GPS radio occultation data, for example, if we were to buy commercial data and feed it into our numerical weather models, how would that benefit the outcome? And could we reduce, you know, that those the 25% of severe storms that we're going to miss because we don't have the Suomi NPP and, and JPS has not yet been launched? Um, if we bought commercial data or if we launched a different type of satellite, could we mitigate that gap? And so, you know, that's really what, 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 you know, I got involved in that activity because I kept having these unfortunate incidents in my district and around the state of Oklahoma where people were getting killed in tornadoes. Here's the other thing that's important to note. And Marshall, I'm sure you know this. Like right now in the United States, the average person who lives, who lives in Oklahoma, the average person gets 13 minutes of lead time on a tornado. Right. That's not very much. Yeah, it's not. And when you think about the fact that that's the average. That and and that's an improvement from what it used to be, but still probably not enough. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely not enough. Especially if, if the average is 13 minutes, that means half the people are getting less than less 13 than minutes. Less than that, absolutely. And so, you know, you think about the person that's getting five or 10 minutes of lead time, and maybe they're not, they don't have the TV on, or they're in a part of Oklahoma where they don't have sirens. You know, the, the, it, it, it becomes a very serious threat to their lives. And we should be well past that. We should be giving people over an hour of lead time based on technology that already exists. 
We just need to field it. And part of fielding, it requires us to do these observation system simulation experiments. And so we put that in the bill as well. What, and we, what is your, ahead. I'm sorry, I wanted to pick up before you move on. What is your thought on some out there in our community and in the social sciences community that say that one hour lead time or too much lead time actually also has its problems too because people maybe let their guard down a bit too much. I'm curious about your thoughts on that. I think that is absolutely wrong. I mean, and I can't tell you how wrong that is. And I'm going to tell you from personal experience, more lead time is better. We have to understand people are smart. If, if people know an hour ahead of time, then they're going to do the right thing. And if they don't do the right thing, at least it's not because they didn't know. Right. And, and, and so we have an obligation to increase that lead time. But you're absolutely right. I heard people tell me when I was a member of Congress that we don't want to give people too much lead time because then they might play a video game and not, and not move out of the way or might, might not take cover. And, uh, you know, I think that that is, um, that is social experimentation that we don't want to play. We want to give people the information they need and then allow them to make good decisions. Now, if they're not making good decisions, uh, we can do things to increase, you know, their their decision making capacity if necessary. We can warn them as to, you know, what the end result is if they don't do the precautions that they're being told that they need to take. Um, but but the last thing we want to do is restrict their information because they're not smart enough to make the right decision. Well, I, I, I want to sort of just uh, weather geeks, uh, viewers, listeners. Um, how many NASA administrators or congressmen have you heard talking about mesoscale models and data set assimilation and OSSEs? Uh, uh, clearly a, a NASA administrator and, and person that understands our community. So it's a, a pleasure to be to have the administrator on Weather Geeks. I want to shift back around to the NASA world now and kind of transition because NASA does Earth sciences. I, again, I was a scientist at NASA at Goddard Space Flight Center for 12 years, was involved in the Global Precipitation Measurement or GPM mission. What would you say about NASA's role in studying planet Earth? Because there are some that say, well, why is NASA doing that? Uh, why is it NOAA or USGS doing that? What, what's your response to people that say that? So it, that's in NASA's mission set, and it always has been, and it always will be. I mean, there is still so much we don't know about our own planet, and it's changing all the time. You know, when I was a member of the House of Representatives, you're right. Some people suggested that um, I was a you know climate denier. I, I heard that, um, and I, and it, you know all that stems from a speech that I gave back in um, oh it was 2013. In fact, it was after the Moore tornado. I, I had all these folks, you know, 21 kids get killed in a tornado in Moore, Oklahoma, and not just kids. There was adults in there too, um, and and so I went to the floor of the House of Representatives, and and I I made the case that. Um, at the time, and by the way, this is still on the NASA website. On the, you know, I, I made the case that um, the the I was trying to get more money for weather prediction is what I was trying to do. And I said, look, global temperatures quit rising ten years ago. Um, but here's what we know: we know that my constituents will die this year in a tornado. We know that we know that. So let's allocate resources where we can save lives today. Now, um, from that, and that was in 2013, I had totally forgotten I gave that speech until I got nominated. And then people started saying that I was a climate denier. Well, by the way, that 10-year pause is still on the NASA website. Of course, the temperatures did go back up as soon yeah, as just, I said that. Just a <laughs> little pause, just like a little blip in the stock market. But the trend was pretty much up. Where, yeah, so it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And so, look, the, the, the reality is, 
um, I, I know, I know that I know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, that we've put more of it into the atmosphere than, than, than at any point in human history. And because of that, the temperatures are warmer today than, than they would be otherwise. And we are responsible for this warming trend that we see. I, I get that 100%. I, I understood it then, as a matter of fact, and I understand it now. At the time, I was advocating for my constituents who were being killed in tornadoes. Um, uh, but, but the reality is we have to understand the earth. The other thing that's important, when I was on the Armed Services Committee, uh, we had uh, an amendment uh, offered by the Democrats that um, asked for the Department of Defense to do a study as to how the, uh, in essence, um, uh, how well are we prepared as a country to uh, mitigate against climate change from a national security perspective? Like, how are we postured from a national security perspective to deal with climate change? And of course, as you can imagine, all the Democrats were for it and all the Republicans were against it. Well, I stood up as a lone Republican and I made the case as a Navy pilot, you know, we're, we are able to, to, um, we're able to sail in, in places, namely the Arctic, where we never used to be able to go before. And we're having to defend territory from the Russians that we never used to have to defend before because the Arctic ice is melting. And th- the reality is you can stick your head in the sand, but that is happening. Um, and so we need to understand the planet. Uh, there's a lot we still don't understand when you talk about the, the feedback mechanisms. So we understand carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We have contributed to global warming. There, there, what we don't know is what are the feedback mechanisms from that? When you think about, okay, the Arctic ice melts, you've got blue ocean now. That absor- absorbs more energy. So now the earth is going to naturally warm. At the same time... Uh, carbon dioxide results in more vegetation and vegetation of course we see right now we see the greening of the earth and with the greening of the earth you've got these carbon dioxide you've got carbon sinks and at the same time the greening of the earth cools the planet so there's all these feedback mechanisms that we don't yet fully understand and the question is are we do these feedback mechanisms create instability in the temperature globally or do they create stability and you know we're trying to learn and understand more about that every day, uh, and that's really what NASA does, yeah. and NASA needs to be involved. In yeah, that. I would agree with that because I think the thing that many people that don't kind of follow this as closely as you and I do that you know NOAA tends to have more of an operational mission. They're they're making our forecasts. They've got the operational satellites, GOES, INPOS, etc. I mean, JPSS, etc. Uh, NASA really is, I've, I've often described NASA, if you think about NASA and NOAA and the government as a, as a, a car company, uh, you know, you've got sort of that research and development pushing the envelope arm of your company, and then you've got those people that are really kind of operationalizing your products. NASA takes risk. That's what we do, and I say we because I'm still a part of the NASA family in some ways. NASA is willing to take those risks on a new radar that can measure uh, thunderstorms in a hurricane or send a probe to the sun. And, I, right. and that, that really is a little bit different than an operational mission. Now, and I want to pause here for one moment. And we are back on the Weather Geeks podcast with the NASA Administrator, Jim Bridenstine. We're talking about sort of NASA and his evolution on climate and sort of he gave you some perspective on sort of some of the statements he made for, about climate in the past. 
this gets me to something that you started talking about earlier in the podcast. And, you know, after NASA made this very important announcement of the new NASA astronaut corps, and that's so important, I want to talk to you a little bit about that. I, I, I saw people saying, oh, NASA's back. The space program is back. But I pushed back and said, well, it never went anywhere. I mean, we've got, the, you know, the Parker probe. We've got the GPM satellite. We've got ISAT-2 coming up. Um, why do you think that people just see NASA as the manned program, which is critical, by the way. But why do you think we, the citizens just see NASA and what we do as just the manned program? And it's yeah. Not, yeah. I think it's because of the, the drama around it and the, um, the prestige of it. Uh, it just seems to get more, more attention. All that being said, you're absolutely right. NASA has amazing missions going on all the time. In fact, we recently launched, I think, uh, you know, when, when you, the last time we launched American astronauts from American soil on American rockets was back in 2011. And I think when when people remember the space shuttles, they it's, it's, it's nostalgic. It, people remember how impressive it was and the awe of it. Um, and, and I think because that is so emotional, uh, that's, that's what people think of when they think of NASA. Right. And of course people think of Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin landing on the moon and, and the, the five moon missions that came after that. Um, so all of those, all of those things are what people think about because I think the, that that's the most salient piece of NASA, but you're absolutely right. NASA does so much more than that. When you think about the science mission directorate and planetary science and heliophysics and um, earth science, uh, we, we do astrophysics, deep space, uh, exploration. We do all kinds of things that aren't necessarily tied to human spaceflight. Um, and the people, that, the people that follow that, are, of course, are the scientists and uh, people that are enthusiastic about exploration. Um, but not it's it doesn't get the drama um, on national television the way human space yeah that, that's a that's a good point by the way our, our, what what can you tell our, our listeners about NASA's plans for the Mars and the moon are we going back to Mars anytime soon we, well we we are we've got a we've got a, a a mission on its way to Mars right now insight and in fact uh, we're gonna we're gonna use insight to understand Mars quakes we're gonna try to get a 3D image of the interior of Mars so that we, you know, can understand, you know, not just whether or not, you know, how active the, the geology is, but every time an asteroid impacts Mars, we're going to be able to detect it uh, because, oh, wow. yeah, so it's going to have a seismometer on there and we're going to understand the, the temperature of Mars uh, deep down. Uh, so all of these different instruments are on the InSight project and we're going to be landing InSight on Mars Thanksgiving, which is going to be a, a great day for NASA. You know, this is interesting, Marshall. There's only one nation on the face of the planet that's ever landed successfully on Mars. One. And it's the United States of America. And we've done it seven times. And this will be our eighth time. You think about that achievement. Um, it, it really is amazing that, that, that um, you know, think about NASA being created in 1958 and here we are all these years later, 60 years later, 
And we're still the only country that can land on Mars and do it over and over again successfully. Yeah, I think it's a point of pride for this country and for the world because NASA, through all of its partnerships with its international partners and many of these uh, missions are actually in partnership with uh, other countries as well. I think it's NASA still is considered one of the sort of crown jewels of America. And I I, I know you're you're proud to lead that. And I want to use this last few minutes here to kind of get some big picture thoughts from you. Fast forward 20 years from now, you look back on your time at NASA. What do you hope to accomplish or what what do you hope has been accomplished at NASA under your tenure? That's a great question. Well, we want to make sure we're heading back to the moon. I mean, that that's happening. We're going to do it in a sustainable way. Uh, in other words, we're going to take advantage of reusable systems. We all have seen what happens when you re, reuse rockets. The cost of access to space goes down. The, the access to space goes up for more people. When I say people, I mean hardware, equipment. Um, and we want an entire architecture between Earth and the moon to be reusable. Now, is all of that going to... So, so tugs to be reusable between Earth orbit and lunar orbit, landers to be reusable from, from, uh, from moon orbit, lunar orbit to the surface of the moon. We want, um, we want all of it to be reusable. We want it to be replicable at Mars. We want to take advantage of the hundreds of billions of tons of water ice that we now understand is on the surface of the moon. We want to use, use that not only for life support, in other words, human activities on the surface of the moon, but also we want to use it for propulsion. Hydrogen and oxygen is, in fact, rocket propulsion. So all of that. Now, is that going to happen in my time as the NASA administrator? Uh, no. But what we want to do is we want to get that well underway so that in, in, in years, in, you know, my children will grow up. Right now, there are kids graduating from high school knowing that their entire lives we've had Americans living and working in space on the International Space Station. We want to make sure that um, when my kids' kids grow up, they're growing up in a world where there have been people living and working in orbit around the moon and on the surface of the moon their entire lives. We want that sustainable architecture that uses our international partners, uses our commercial partners. That's what we want to develop. And it starts right now with the President's Space Policy Directive 1. And then the other thing that I hope I can accomplish, a lot of America is still not aware of how dependent we are on space. Every single one of us every day is dependent on space. The way we communicate, the way we navigate, the way we produce food, the way we produce energy, the way we do weather prediction and understand climate, the way we do um, national security and defense, the way we do disaster relief, banking, regulate flows of power on the on the on the the uh, power grid, um, all of it is dependent on space. And, uh, and all of those capabilities are available because of a trail that was blazed by NASA. Yeah. And, and for the very small budget that NASA has, uh, we have enabled a, a, a human condition that is far beyond anything anybody would have imagined. Yeah, I agree completely. NASA is one of the best invest investments uh, that that citizens make for, you know, pennies and dollars relatively speaking, as are NOAA and the Weather Service and others as well. I have one more question, but before I do that, quick update because I know ISAT 2 is going to be going up soon. Everything going okay with that? Yeah, we're on we're on schedule for for ISAT 2 and uh, and it's uh, obviously a critically important mission for the United States to understand uh, you know the the these sheets of ice in the Arctic that um, 
that people are concerned about. Where are they going? And um, understanding our hydrosphere even even better than we already do. Yeah, no, we're looking forward to that. Final question. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I, I spent 12 years at NASA, and one of those years I actually did a detail down at NASA headquarters, and so I got to look at the agency from that perspective as well. In your time at NASA so far, what has surprised you most about the agency, the people there, the culture? I'll tell you, um, the raw intellect. <laughs> yeah, it's the smart people there. Aren't they? That's right. The the raw there like you, I'm working in an agency where I know that everybody here is smarter than me, and that's a that's a good thing. Uh, and 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 I and not only that, but they're all opinionated, and that's even better. There's there's no shortage of people here who are willing to speak their minds and tell the administrator exactly what they think the administrator needs to hear. And so that's a very positive thing for NASA and for our country. Yeah, that's that's it is amazing. Uh, You know, in the science culture there, you know, we can disagree and challenge each other and tell people how we feel. But, you know, at the end of the day, we go and, you know, uh, share a drink across or or do whatever we do. That's that's what I enjoy about the science culture and particularly NASA. Administrator Bridenstine, I really want to thank you for uh, joining us here on the Weather Geeks podcast. And uh, we wish you continued success in your current role and for your continued service to this country. We thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shepard. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's the Weather Geeks podcast. Thank you for joining us.